0: But I welcome him here this morning and I'm very honored uh, to have him come. As many of you know, I guard my pulpit uh, uh, very much and this is one of those times I would freely give it up to this man and you will learn very quickly why. He's very good at handling God's word. So I would just ask you to give him your attention and uh, would you welcome uh, David Jackman. Well thank you very much Dan for your welcome. And uh, it's a great joy for us to be here. My wife Heather is here with me. We've uh, been a, a week in Canada. We were in Ottawa last Sunday at a church there, and through Toronto this week, and uh, here today. And looking forward to the men's retreat too at uh, next weekend. So thank you for your welcome. It's great to see Dan in his natural habitat uh, here in uh, Calgary. I've been in Calgary once or twice before with preaching workshops um, uh, organised by the Simeon Trust, uh, which is a US-based organization very similar <coughs> excuse me very very similar to the proclamation trust <coughs> um, which we have in London so um, we're here to hear the word of God uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll stand as we read the word together and then uh, we'll look together at what this uh, marvelous chapter passage that we've got in front of us will uh, teach us this morning so let's pray together by heavenly father we draw near to you because you've said draw near to God and he will draw near to you we thank you that you've already uh, been with us as we've been seeking to praise your name and to rejoice in our great salvation and we thank you for uh, the reminder through the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus of all that you have accomplished for us that great salvation that has saved us in time for eternity. And we pray now that as we come to your word, you will refresh our minds and hearts through it. We ask that you will speak to us from these scriptures. And we pray that uh, our minds may be given over to think your thoughts, our hearts may be warmed and softened by your love and grace, and our lives may be strengthened by your Holy Spirit that we may live and work for your praise and glory. So please be with us during this time now and uplift the Lord Jesus among us and do us good as we seek to go out to live and work for you this coming week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and we're going to read together from the second letter of Peter, um, chapter 1 at verse 12. second letter of Peter, very near the end of your New Testament chapter 1 at verse 12 and I'm going to read through to chapter 2 verse 1. Peter writes, So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. This is God's word, and we give him thanks for it. Please do be seated. And please keep your Bible open there at this uh, passage of 2 Peter. Uh, My title this morning is, Is Faith Wishful Thinking? Or maybe you want to put it this way, how can we really be sure that the content of our faith uh, will stand the test of time and all the difficulties and troubles and trials that life may bring? Now, every year, the Oxford English Dictionary chooses a new word of the year. It's a word that's come to prominence during that year, and uh, becomes part of our ordinary, everyday conversation. And the word for the year 2016 was the word post-truth. Post-truth, which it defined as a choice not to live by facts, but by opinion, and by talking points. As one journalist put it, facts are negative and pessimistic and sometimes unpatriotic. You've got to connect emotionally. So in our modern media, fact-checking is replaced by dramatic, drastic messaging, headline-grabbing. Social media produces echo chambers where one particular insight, one particular viewpoint dominates. And there's no scrutiny of any alternative or diverse opinions, anyone who objects is out, they have no platform to speak. And so we live in a culture that is increasingly subject to exaggerated statements, whether they're tweeted from the White House in the middle of the night, or (laughs) wherever else aggressively expressed often based on rumor and half truth and then increasingly strong reactions against them and instead of debate we have abuse and a very miserable cultural context it is producing all this is the fruit of postmodernism postmodernism says there is no absolute truth it goes right back to the existentialists of the middle 20th century who said Life's meaningless if there is no infinite reference point. And God is dead, we've killed him. There is no infinite reference point, there is no meaning to life. But we cannot and we do not actually live that way. Some things are true and always will be. Whatever our emotional reaction to them may be, the law of gravity always applies the laws that govern electricity are never suspended by your emotions you cannot build a postmodern bridge and i don't want you to try to sell me a postmodern insurance policy <laughs> and when it comes to faith and values and deciding what my life is for i don't want to build it on cleverly devised stories but that of course is what the post truth echo chambers are constantly telling us that Christianity is not really to be trusted. Uh, There is no ultimate truth anyway and because Christianity claims that there is then it probably shouldn't be tolerated. Certainly it doesn't seem to connect with our modern world. But I want to suggest to you that the question in so many areas of life is not do I like it but is it true? And if we think it might be Can we be sure about it? There are many things in life that we might not like. We might not like that medical diagnosis. We might not like that note that says you flunked your exams. We might not like the dismissal notice from our work. But the question is not do I like it, but is it true? And that's the question I want to address with you for the next few minutes from this marvellous little letter of Peter. Because none of this is peculiar to the 20th century. It was this issue that motivated Peter to write his letter. And as always, the Bible is addressed to real people in real life situations facing real issues. And for the Christians of Peter's first century Mediterranean world, the question of truth was very pressing, because false teachers were infiltrating the churches, and their mission was to distort the truth. That's why we read into chapter 2, verse 1. Just look with me at that verse, if you will. There were also false prophets among the people, that's the Old Testament people, just as there will be false teachers among you. What do these false teachers say? Well, verse 1 says, they introduce destructive heresies. And so they start to teach things that will destroy the church. They're not true, and they will destroy believers. And then in verse 2, their teaching is linked to their conduct. Chapter 2, verse 2 Many will follow their depraved conduct and bring the way of truth into disrepute. So there's open immorality that follows false teaching. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories, stories they've made up. And they will say, Well, it doesn't really matter whether or not there is truth. Uh, So long as you are feeling comfortable and enjoying life and it seems to make sense to you. Now those sorts of problems within the church have not left us in the 21st century. But the church is also attacked from outside by the enemies of Christ and the gospel. Just look across the page in your Bible to chapter 3 of this letter. Above all, this is verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand, Peter says, that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? That's the return of Jesus. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on, just as it has since the beginning of creation. So you've got destructive teachers within the church, who are saying that uh, the gospel uh, cannot be trusted. You've got attackers who are mocking the gospel from outside the church, scoffing, who are saying you talk about Christ as God's eternal king, ruling the world and returning to judge. Well, there's no sign of it, is there? The whole world's going on, as it always has done. And we are equally familiar with that sort of destructive mockery today. So the question of certainty is one of Peter's major concerns. Can you really be sure, or is your faith wishful thinking? And if we're going to engage with fellow uh, students and work people and family and so on, who have adopted this sort of um, (coughs) contemporary thinking, we need to know what we need to say. We need to be sure, first of all, of our faith for ourselves, and then we need to be able to engage them in conversation and discussion that will help them to see why we believe what we believe, before the Christian faith is just completely routinely dismissed, and people think it has no evidence, no grounding in truth. Well, that was his concern for them then, and you can see that it's a contemporary concern for us now. Are we following cleverly invented stories? When we seek to revere the Lord Jesus and to worship him, when we allow our lives to be governed by the Bible and its teaching, are we just deceiving ourselves? Do we really have strong, reliable evidence, what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth? Or is the whole Christian message just a projection of corporate wish fulfillment? That's the issue today. One of the English bishops said a few years ago that the problem today is that it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you believe, it doesn't matter. And he wasn't wasn't advocating that, he was saying that's the problem. And it's the problem all around us. People say it doesn't matter what you believe, because it doesn't matter. Okay, let's look then at one or two things that Peter will help us with from this passage. Firstly, the issues that Peter is addressing. Why is he writing this? What's really concerning him? What's his great purpose? Well, it takes you back to the beginning of the letter. I'm sure you know that in New Testament letters, if you go to the beginning and the end, you will often find the kernel of the truth that the letter is teaching. And in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 you get this marvellous purpose statement of the letter. Just look with me at it for a moment. God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He's given to us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world ...caused by evil desires. So this is Peter's starting point. Everything we need for godly living... ...comes from the divine power. And that's the word that's always used in the New Testament... ...to describe the Holy Spirit. He is the energy, the power, the dunamis of God. The Holy Spirit has been given us. And what has the Holy Spirit done? He has given us, verse 4, his very great and precious promises... So we have the Spirit of God, who gives us the Word of God. And through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, the people of God are united to Him by faith and escape the corruption in the world. So we have the Spirit and we have the Word, and it is that which is the resource for everything we need to live a godly life as we come to know God through His Word and to be transformed by His Spirit. That's why he says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, that's Peter's big concern. See, he wants these people to be so sure of their faith that they devote their energy and time to adding to their faith, to growing. In other words, he's saying to us, if you really do believe this gospel, then you've got to devote your life to growing in gospel likeness to Jesus. Qualities of Christian character, which are there in verse 5, 6, following. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says, my concern is that you will be making every effort, which really means putting everything you've got into it, to grow more and more like the Lord Jesus. Because, chapter 1, verse 8... If you do have these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive. Now in the context of the false teachers and the attacks from outside, what he's saying is this. Growing Christians are living proof of the truth of the gospel. If we as Christians are not growing more and more like the Lord Jesus, why should anybody believe our message? Growing Christians are living proof of the truth of the gospel. Make every effort to add to your faith. And he's given us the resources. He's given us the word, and he's given us the spirit. The spirit teaches us the word. The spirit enables us to put the word into practice. And so as we seek to live godly lives in the world, that authenticates the gospel. Somebody said the other day, what the world needs now is not more Christian salesmen, but more free samples. (laughs) And you can be a free sample this week. A free sample of Jesus as you make every effort to add to your faith. That's what makes your calling and election sure, as he says in verse 10. And then he comes right into our passage and he says, look, I'm reminding you about these things because I want you to go on doing this even when I'm not on the scene and even when, uh, as he refers to his martyrdom, which is coming up. You remember Jesus told him about that uh, before the ascension and in verse 14 he says, I know I'll soon put my body on one side as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. But the concern he's got is there in verse 12. I will always remind you of these things, that you need to be a growing Christian and a godly church that produces a a world that is hungry for that reality. And you see, he says in verse 12, I know that you already know them. I know that you're already firmly established in the truth, but I know how easy it is for you to drift from that. I know how quickly you'll forget it. I know that when the pressure's on, with false teaching within and scoffers without, you will very quickly let go of that truth, unless you are making every effort to add to your faith. There's an old song called Tell Me the Old, Old Story, in which uh, the hymn says, Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon." And that is so true of us, isn't it? Uh, Why did we have communion this morning? Well, the Lord commanded us to. Why did he command us? He said, do it in remembrance of me. And when you remember, you don't just go back in your mind and say, oh yes, Jesus died on the cross for us, that's wonderful. Remembering means recalling what is past with a view to living it out now and in the future. I mean, if you remember that it's your wedding anniversary this coming week, it would be wise to act on that, wouldn't it? Uh, It's no good saying when the great day comes and your beloved says to you, it's our wedding anniversary today. Oh yes, I remembered it in church on Sunday morning. No, you didn't. You didn't remember it. You didn't do anything. And when we remember the Lord's death till he comes, we take that bread and wine to say we're going to seek to live Jesus' lives, Jesus-like lives. We're going to be people who are adding to our faith. Christianity is not a spare time occupation or hobby or something you do as a special interest. It's your life. Christ is our life. And the issue he's addressing here is I need to keep reminding you about this and refreshing your memory so that you act on it. That's why we need to be reading our Bibles every day. That's why we need to hear God's word expanded week by week. Because there are so many distortions. So many mocking voices. So much uncertainty. And that's why Peter wrote this down and was so thankful that he did. Because he lived in a world which experience the same sort of attacks as we do. So he's reminding us right at the beginning of this uh, little section that our faith is supremely a historical faith. It speaks about a God who came into the world that he made in order to reveal himself to us in time, in space, in history, in the person of a man who was God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth. Now my friends, that is basic Christianity and it is either true or false. It either happened or it didn't happen. So what we're looking at is examining the truth claims. And these always depend, of course, on the validity of the evidence that is presented. I don't know if it's true in your culture, but back in the UK we live in a situation of immense ignorance about Christianity. Huge amount of ignorance. People have no idea Uh, My son invited one of his work colleagues to uh, to church at Easter and she said, um, oh yes, Easter, what's that about? Something about God dying, isn't it? And a lot of people don't have any real knowledge. Now, that may not be their fault, but it's a fact. In a recent survey amongst teenagers in Britain, uh, over 50% of the teenagers thought that Jesus Christ was a figure of fiction in the same uh, category as Harry Potter and Santa Claus. Mind you, over 50% of them also thought that Winston Churchill was a figure of fiction. But that's just to comment on the British education system. But our faith is a historical faith. It really happened. And that's what Peter goes to next. So we move from the issues that he's addressing to the evidence that he presents. Verses 16 to 18, the evidence he presents. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Now he says there are two great strands of evidence that show that the Christian faith is not wishful thinking. He describes it as the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus. The power Verse 16, this is, the power was seen in his earthly ministry, in his wonderful words and his mighty deeds, which culminated in his atoning death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. But are they myths? Plenty of people, of course, want to claim that they are, because if the power of his first coming is a myth, then the coming, which is the word that's used in the New Testament exclusively about the second coming of Jesus, So he's linking the first coming in power with the second coming in power. If you don't believe the first coming in power happened, of course you won't believe there's going to be a second coming. That, however, is the pivotal point of the New Testament Gospel. The coming of Jesus Christ in power and glory to wind up human history and bring in his eternal kingdom. And everything that Jesus accomplished in his first coming is in preparation for his second coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when every eye will see the reality which is hidden at present, that Jesus really is the king of the universe, and that all that he has revealed about God is the ultimate reality of the universe. Oh, said the opponents of Peter, myth, prove it. Oh, say the 21st century sceptics, prove it. So he does. And he proves it in two ways. Verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the beginning of verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. So there are two important things here, eyewitnesses and ear witnesses. And the disciples, and we here is of course Peter, James and John, who we know from the Gospels were taken by Jesus up the mountain, for the experience of what is described here and what we usually call the transfiguration, where they saw Jesus transfigured before them in all the majesty and glory that he had with the Father before time began. They saw as much of that honor and glory, that resplendent, radiant, brilliant light as any human being could take. And God revealed himself to them in Jesus so that what they saw and what they heard becomes the foundation of our faith. That is the evidence. But you see, it is very comprehensive, because not only did they see Christ in his glory, but they heard the divine voice interpreting to them what they saw. Look at verse 17. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So they didn't only see the glory of Jesus, they heard the Father's voice interpreting to them what they saw. How else could they understand And the voice spoke to explain and confirm the significance of what they saw, so that we can believe on their evidence. Not only are the facts true, but the interpretation of the facts is true. God spoke to explain who Jesus is. And of course all this happened just before his cross, so that the disciples would know that that was not some ghastly mistake but was the very purpose as to why he'd come into the world. Now, let me stop there for a moment to say this is the way the Bible always works. God does things, and God explains things. The events have explanations attached to them, and that constitutes the revelation. The revelation of God in Scripture is by what he says and what he does. We reveal ourselves to one another like that, As I've met some of you this morning for the first time, we speak to one another, we react to one another in conversation. As we got to know one another better in the future, if we were to do that, we would do things together. Events and explanations, sharing our thoughts, are how we reveal ourselves. And that's how the Bible reveals God, just as we, made in the image of God, reveal ourselves like that. So let's not write this off. Peter is about to go to his death rather than deny that this, were, that this was true. And he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and we were witnesses of God's statement that Jesus is his son. The event and the explanation constitute the revelation of the gospel. And I don't need some 21st century critic to explain it some other way. God has explained it his way. That is God's truth. So Peter, John and James saw and heard to confirm the faith that he'd already expressed. Peter writes it down for us so that we will have authoritative first-hand witness. And Peter, as I say, will die as a martyr rather than deny that truth. Our faith is rooted in historical action. This is my beloved son. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. Now, he wants to add to that not just the historical reality, and of course everyone has to admit that Jesus Christ is a figure of history. Even Rousseau, who is a great uh, opponent of Christianity, said that Jesus Christ must have existed because the mind that made him up would have been just as great as his mind was, and whose mind was it? (laughs) nobody can make up Jesus. The historical evidence for Jesus is stronger, many critics, many uh, scholars say, than even the historical evidence for Julius Caesar. So don't say oh well nobody knows if Jesus existed. Of course he did. It's ignorance to say that there is no evidence. The evidence is there. And it's there in the apostolic witness, but it's also there in the history of the church and in many, many inscriptions from those early years of the church. But Peter doesn't look to that, of course, because that's all future. He looks back for his second strand of evidence. And he explains the confidence that we can have because of the Old Testament. And this is our last paragraph from verses 19 through to 21. Because you see, he's saying, what we saw and heard in Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was predicting and pointing forward to over so many different centuries. And in the case of the Old Testament prophets, it was testimony before the event. The fact that what they said was confirmed by the event, centuries later, confirms, of course, that they were speaking from God. That they were given divine understanding about what God was going to do. And that's why he says we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Now, at the beginning of verse 19, you may have different versions of the Bible. There is a bit of a translation issue. The New International Version says we have the word of the prophets made more certain. That is, made more certain by the fulfilment of all that they predicted in the person of Jesus. But the ESV, if you have that, says we have something more sure, the prophetic word... That is, the ESV is taking the line that the revealed word of God in the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament is even more certain than the eyes and ears of the apostolic witnesses. Well, it could be translated either way, and if it can be translated either way, enjoy both. And in a sense, it works both ways. Both are divinely given revelation. The word of the prophets is made more certain through the person and work of Jesus, But it isn't just that we're dependent on Peter as the witness, though he's an absolutely rock-solid witness. But we have the prophetic word as something even more sure. Now, no doubt, this was what led Peter to proclaim the certainty of verses 20 and 21. None of the Old Testament writers, he said, decided to write their own book... Or to interpret God's dealings with Israel by their own independent viewpoint, verse 20, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So Isaiah didn't get up one morning and say to Mrs. Isaiah, I had a rather good idea about a book I might write. (laughs) He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 21 says. It's a very powerful metaphor. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. And it's the image of a boat with the wind in the sails and the boat skidding across. We were looking at some boats on Lake Ontario this week, and the wind was in the sails, and these little yachts were skidding across the lake at great speed. That's the image of verse 21. The prophets were empowered by the wind of God, the Spirit of God, and they were moved by God, to write the truth that God was revealing to them. He told them what to write, he told them what it meant. And we have no right to reinterpret the heavenly interpretations. And that's why the certain word is described in verse 19 as a light shining in a dark place. See, that's where the light comes from, from Scripture. From the New Testament, apostolic testimony, and from the Old Testament, prophetic word. And the source of the light is external. It's not within ourselves. It's a light shining into a dark place. The dark place is your heart and mine. Uh, People say, oh, you must go on a search for the inner light. If you go on a search for the inner light, all you will find is your own inner darkness. The darkness of your human sin and rebellion. It's not visions and dreams and pictures we need. It's God's unchanging revelation of himself, the truth, in the Holy Scriptures, because there is no alternative light source. So he says in verse 19, you will do well to pay attention to it daily. There is a day, verse 19 says, when... Jesus, the morning star, will rise in your hearts. That is to say, when he comes again, or when we see him face to face, and we are transformed into his likeness, then faith will vanish into sight, and his light will fully make us into his likeness. But until then, his word is the lamp to our feet, and the light to our path. Jesus is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no alternative light source. That's why the false prophets of chapter 2 are to be rejected. Because their message finds its origin in their own will. Not in God's will. People want things to happen, so they prophesy that they'll happen. They make a great living as a false prophet. They say what other people want to hear. When it doesn't happen, they have to reinterpret it and wriggle their way out of it. and Then everybody loses confidence, quite justifiably. But the real casualty is the truth the truth of the Gospel. No, there is only one source of ultimate authority, and that is God Himself, and He mediates that authority by His Spirit through His Word. He is its originator, He is its guarantor, and the human writers were the chosen, gifted channels of that. So my friends, we can be sure, and the coming of Jesus has proved the truth of all that they said, in the Old Testament uh, writings. Just as His earthly life and ministry, His death on the cross and His glorious resurrection are themselves the great good news of God's saving purpose. And if we can be sure about His power in the first coming, we can be equally sure about the certainty of His second coming. So as I close, there are one or two implications I want to just underline. They're very simple, but as with all biblical truth, it's very profound, because it's life-changing. Firstly, this, hold on to this. Jesus is God's Son. Now, that idea of the Son is that the life of the Father is in the Son. So, a Father, humanly, gives life to his Son. His life is in his Son, the mother's life is in the Son, of course, as well. But here is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God because the life of the Father, unseen, is revealed perfectly in the incarnate Christ. That was what Peter saw. That was what he heard at the transfiguration. And that's why all the way through this letter he continually refers to him as Our Lord Jesus the Christ. God's self-revelation in human form. Lord of all. Jesus, the Savior, who came not simply to give us a great way of living a human life, but who came to die an atoning death on the cross in our place as our representative and as our substitute. And this Christ, God's anointed King, is risen in power, reigning in glory. He's the object of our faith. He is the one we worship and adore, and he is the one whom we obey. Our Lord Jesus, the Christ. Don't let go of that. And when you're talking to people about your faith, take them to Jesus. That's the real issue. You can get involved in all sorts of arguments about the minutiae of what the Bible may or may not mean by certain uh, passages. But take people to Christ. It's all about Jesus as God's son. That's where the history is. That's where the reality lies. But hold on to this, too, that Scripture is God's word. So the more time you give to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest its truth, the more you will be able to add to your faith and make your calling and election sure and grow in your knowledge of the Lord. But Scripture is not just to be studied, it's to be obeyed. It is the rule of our life. It is the settler of our priorities. And where the word of God is proclaimed, the voice of God is heard. People often say things to me like this, oh, I like to think that God is, or I can't believe that God would. But the issue is, what does the Bible say? You might like to think it or not think it. That's irrelevant. What does the Bible say? The Bible needs to be in the driving seat of your personal life. The Bible needs to be in the driving seat of this church. For then Christ will be the Lord of the church. Christ will be the ruler and governor of our life. Christ will guide and enable us through his word. And there is no plan B. Without that, the church will die. You can see it all across the Western world. Dying churches that have rejected Scripture as the Word of God. So, my friends, we need to pay attention to both. We need to give our eyes and ears to the divine revelation in the written Word, which will always lead us to the Lord Jesus, the living Word, the one we love and trust and serve. Faith may very easily be wishful thinking, if it's just faith in faith. But faith in the Christ of the scriptures is reality in a world of fakes, light in a world of darkness, and certainty in time for eternity. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment or two to reflect on what we've thought about together, especially what the Word of Scripture has said. Maybe there's one thing that the Lord's laid on your mind or heart this morning, and something that we need to ask Him to give us strength to believe, or power to obey, or fresh insight to move forward. Just commit it to Him in the quietness of these few moments of prayer as we open our minds and hearts to God's truth. We thank you, our gracious Lord, that we do not follow cleverly devised fables. We thank you for the reality of the events of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection, the historicity of our faith. And we thank you for the way in which multitudes, countless multitudes of people all across the world in every generation have proved these things to be true in practice as they have bowed the knee to Jesus, the Saviour who is Christ the King, our Lord and our God. And we thank you for what you've shown us, each one of us individually, of that truth and pray that we may make every effort to add to our faith, that we won't be ineffective, unproductive Christians, but that our lives may glorify you and be a blessing to the folks around us as these certainties govern us, direct us, and shape us into the likeness of Christ. And we ask this so that your great name may be uplifted across this great nation, across the Western world, where the name of Jesus is so little known and understood, where there's been so much secularism and atheistic attacks upon the gospel. Lord, make your church a church of people who are committed not only to believing the truth intellectually, but to living it out practically in our lives. Make us the free samples, we pray this week. For Jesus' sake. Amen.